Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. My name is Diana Clark, and today we have Kitty Sprague, who is our guest to talk about her journey from mental illness to mental wellness. And I'm joined by Arden O'Connor today. Kitty was born and raised in New York City, where she attended not just kindergarten, when a lot of parents moved their kids out of the city. She went all the way through grade 12. Then in 2007, went to Cairo, Egypt, and spent a number of months, if not, I'm looking for her time there. She spent a lot of time there learning Arabic and came back to the United States where she is now enrolled at Columbia. She's 32 years old. And the small print would be, and she has had bipolar disorder, some OCD and a binge eating disorder. She's now speaking out to help fight stigma by talking on podcasts like ours and talking to people about her experience. And she is one of the brave so thank you, Kitty, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. So first of all, Arden and I both express want to express a real bout of gratitude for coming on today. We talked to your mother and a few podcasts ago, and the idea that we could actually hear your experience as well has been very exciting to us. Can you tell us about your mental health journey? Sure, sure. So I, I started experiencing symptoms when I was a very little girl. And throughout the course of my life growing up, I, it, uh, my condition deteriorated until uh, when I was 19, I was hospitalized for the first time. And it's taken really 12 years to come back from that. So that's the executive summary. Um, but I uh, when I was a little girl in preschool, uh, my preschool teacher told my mom that she doesn't mind when uh, the kids played on their own as long as they were going to a happy place. But she said to my mom, Kitty's not going to a happy place. And by the time I was in first grade, it occurred to me that I might like to kill myself. And this started because I was yelled at by a teacher in school one day because I had ADHD and was, I don't know, playing around. And um, and so that was how it, it got started. And I asked my nannies, you know, how long would it take for you to, uh, you know, starve yourself to death? And they said three days, which is not right. But uh, at any rate, that's how it began. And um, by fourth grade, fourth grade was a really bad year. I was extremely suicidal, really suicidal. That was when my mom found out that I was suicidal. She came home one day and found me crying on my bed. Um, but then fifth, sixth, and seventh grades were not so bad. Uh, fourth grade was bad because I was not a good student. And as I got older, I became a better student. So whereas I was like a 
B minus C plus student in fourth grade. I was a B plus student by seventh grade and that was made me feel better. But then um, I, I would write stories, you know, just for fun in my middle school years. And it was clear that from the stories looking back that I was beginning to become irritable. I was beginning to isolate more. Um, my mom noticed that and um, I just kind of retreated. And then I got to eighth grade. I was extremely suicidal in eighth grade. Literally, it was the first thing I would think about when I woke up in the morning. Last thing I'd think about when I fell asleep at night. Um, and that was a miserable year. I got through it. Ninth grade came around. I, um, I, that was the one time I tried to kill myself was a week before my 15th birthday. And I was holding the 15th aspirin pill that I was about to swallow. And I just said to myself, you know what, tonight is not my night. So I made the decision to keep living as I have done many, many times in my life. And I went and got my mom. We went to the hospital. I was physically, I was okay, thankfully. Um, but in 10th grade, I, I remember sitting, sitting in my room thinking to myself, gee, you know, being suicidal is supposed to be a bad thing. It's supposed to mean that you have an illness. And I thought to myself, but I've always felt this way. I felt this way in first grade when I was doing so much better. So this is, I guess, just the way I am. That's what I concluded to myself. And my parents tried to get me to get help, but I didn't take mental illness seriously. It was never discussed. It was never talked about. Um, it was just not on my radar. So I didn't think it was a quote, and this was the word that I had in my head. I didn't think that depression was a quote, legitimate reason uh, to leave school, even though that's you know, subconsciously, that's what I really wanted at that point. So I tried starving myself for the first three months of 10th grade. And I would basically eat nothing during the week and uh, throw up any eating that I had to do, like dinner with my mom and sister. And I did that um, because I wanted to become anorexic. Now, the primary goal of this was not to become thin. I figured that would be a nice side effect. But the primary goal was to get myself hospitalized because I felt like because anorexia nervosa has a physical component, that that would be this, a quote, legitimate reason um, to be hospitalized. So by December, I was starving and not anorexic. And so I gave that up, that failed. And I continued on. And throughout high school, it really felt like my brain was kind of just deteriorating. Um, that's the best way I could put it. And my condition got worse and worse. And as time passed on, it deteriorated more rapidly. So by 11th grade, I remember um, telling some of my friends that I wouldn't care if I was raped. And they looked at me like, are you nuts? And I was thinking, is it a traumatic thing? And I was looking back on I was thinking, would I always have, would I in the past have thought it was traumatic? Now I can sit here today after 42 treatments of ECT and tell you that when I was 14, so when I was in eighth grade, I don't know if you guys remember the story of Elizabeth Smart, her kidnapping. Yes. Um, yeah, she, 
uh, was found. And I remember, you know, my mom telling me, oh, well, of course she was raped. And I just felt so devastated for her. And at the time I was like, oh my gosh, this, like, I would be so traumatized if that were to ever happen to me. And at three years later, I could not pull that memory up. That would have answered my questions. I was confused. I was like, would this be traumatic? Would it not be traumatic? Now, to be clear, had that happened to me at the time, I would have been deeply traumatized, but I was beginning to like lose connection with my mind. And there was also that confusion there. Like, is this, you know, would I have always felt this way? Would I have not always felt this way? And um, again, it was that, losing that confusion, the losing touch with how I previously would have felt, um, and the in, un, inability to pull up the memories was what really, um, was what I look back on. And that's when I pinpoint the beginning of the confused thinking. And confused thinking, of course, is like a precursor to psychosis. And I realized that I would no longer be able to pass my classes if I went to school the next day. I think I was studying for like an upcoming math test or something and I just couldn't do it. And I was totally burned out and I put my pencil down and I thought to myself, wow, well, given how well I've been doing in school and how well I've been managing to do, this doesn't fit. And that was what it took to make me say, okay, then depression is a legitimate reason to be pulled out of school. That was the first time because I couldn't deny that if I couldn't pass my classes anymore, <laughs> that was a problem. So um, at any rate, so I, was, I went to my mom and she was relieved. I told her everything and uh, we went to see my learning specialist the next day and he was the one who said, yes, she'll take a medical leave. And I was delighted when they said, we're pulling you out for the rest of the year. And it dawned on me, and I'd been so in my head for all these years, but it dawned on me that I'll bet a lot of other people have been seeing me deteriorating too. So this shouldn't be too hard for them to get me to, to pull me out of school. And um, so I spent the year living at home. I completed my uh, what I had to do to get my diploma from home. And I was seeing a psychiatrist and the diagnosis was depression. And I was taking Effexor, which is an antidepressant. And um, a year later, I was living in Montana. My college guidance counselor said, okay, you won't apply to college in your senior year, but you'll apply, you'll take a gap year and apply during the fall of your gap year. And um, so they said, you need an academic experience. So I took Arabic at Columbia right after high school. And then they said, you'll need an away experience to demonstrate that you're able to live away from home. So I was living in Montana and I did, I was a teenager still, and I did what my doctor told me not to do, which was taper off the effectsor. And I thought the effectsor, I did it because I thought the effectsor had never done anything. Little did I know that throughout that entire year that I'd been taking Effexor, the condition had been deteriorating, but the Effexor effectively froze my mood in place. And so when I came off of it, it hit me like a truck and I was rapid cycling. Uh, so I was starting to get these crying spells 
And I was starting to have this mood state dependent thinking where uh, I would have a crying spell and then even it would happen in a matter of minutes, it would vanish and I would feel just fine. And I could talk to you just like I'm talking to you right now. And I would convince you that, no, I really am fine. That was, that was nothing. And it was because I wholly believed that because every time I'd come out of those crying spells, I'd forget the amount of pain I'd been in. So I, they, I called my parents and I said, I got to be pulled out for the semester. And they said, yeah, we think so too. We're going to have you come back and see a psychiatrist here in New York, another psychiatrist. So this psychiatrist recognized that I was extremely ill and told my parents, you need to hospitalize her tonight. And so the next morning I was put in Columbia Presbyterian. Um, but one of the problems I faced when I was really, really ill was that my thinking was so confused that I didn't know what the doctors needed to know. I didn't, so I would, my parents would come visit me and I'd be telling them about how I was doing and stuff. And they'd be saying to me, Kitty, you need to tell the doctors this. And I remember thinking like, I didn't know that the, I needed to tell the doctors this because I was too confused to, to know what they needed to know. So I, um, at any rate, I was in inpatient for a total of five and a half months. I was hospitalized first at Columbia Presbyterian for a month and then at Johns Hopkins for several more months. And then I went to McLean Hospital and I lived at a DBT unit and they put me there because they wanted me to be in with people who are my own age. And there were really no other programs at McLean that were for people who are roughly my age. So that's where they sent me. And they finally, they gave me what I'd been begging for, which was ECT. And over the course of two summers, I had 42 treatments, both uh, right unilateral and bifrontal. And obviously that wiped out so much of my memory from my past. Um, but I stuck it out and then I lived at McLean at another program for adults um, for several years before I was well enough to get out. And when I was about 27, I did what I shouldn't have done, which was taper off my medication without telling my doctor. Now, why did I do this? Because I had only semi accepted the diagnosis. And I think a lot of people go through that phase when they get diagnosed is there's this sort of you don't want to believe it. Um, you don't want to, you don't want to believe it. And you don't want to have it um, because maybe you've had dreams that you've wanted to do with your life and now they're not possible. Um, so it can be very, very disappointing. But when I tapered off of those meds, I didn't feel drastically worse the way I had in I would have anticipated I would if I'd been seriously ill. And I was seeing a psychiatrist at the time who was telling me, oh, you're not bipolar. Now he was dead wrong about that. He was absolutely terrible psychiatrist, but that was what made me say, oh, well, maybe this was just a really bad depression and maybe this thing is over and I don't have bipolar disorder. So I tapered off and uh, in the very end, I was tapering down and then I sort of cut it off cold turkey. And that I think triggered some hypomania, which I 
couple weeks later, I, I, I made the decision to go back into treatment and um, I was put on back on my medications and that evened out. Um, but it, that was the first time I realized, oh, I am, I'm recovering from something and it's just taking a really long time. And I said, I predict that by the time I'm 34, this will be better. And um, I was very close in that, in my estimation. I had a couple of years ago, I had another hypomanic episode, which set me back. I wasn't fully recovered at that point, set me back. By that point, I was at Columbia and I stuck it out for a couple semesters because that depression didn't feel like the other depression that I had had. I'd never felt that way before. I, I was overcome with this feeling of loneliness, like I had never felt before in my life, but it, this wasn't just regular loneliness. This was, I felt like I was in solitary confinement loneliness. Like my world was collapsing in on me, like couldn't think, you know, it was, it was just really, really painful. And it would subside when I spent time around people. But then what would happen was that it would come right back and that was a Band-Aid. And I tried using those sun lamps and those were a good Band-Aid, but then it was getting worse and worse. And after a point, being around people no longer made it feel better. And um, the sun lamps were really of minimal help. And that was when I said to myself, okay, gonna have to go back into treatment. And I regret letting it go so long and putting up with so much pain, but I guess, there's a part of me that always wants to keep going and keep pushing through, but I've, I've now learned not to do that. Um, so anyway, that's how I got to where I am today. Uh, I'm doing much better. I'm in really good shape. Um, treatment is very much behind me. The rest of my life will not look like the past and I'm looking forward to it. What I'm in awe of you. Yeah. Thank in you. Awe. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. One of my next questions is around, you know, when you look back on all the various decision points and you know, instances of being stable and then less stable, you know, are there things that you identify where you say, gosh, I wish I had done this differently? Oh, yeah. Well, for one, I wish we'd gone to a different um, learning specialist because that learning specialist uh, to a learning specialist who would have said to my mom, OK, she has ADHD. There's a very good chance that she will go on to develop bipolar disorder. Is there a history of depression or suicide in your family? And she would have said, why, yes, my grandmother killed herself at the age of 35. And um, there's no other serious mental illness going back on both sides down the line, um, except for Catherine, my great grandmother. And um, I don't know a lot about her life. Uh, I know that she had depression and was getting was getting worse and worse. So, you know, I think she had something like what I did. But at any rate, this is a serious illness, and I do have a genetic predisposition to it. So this, and then I would have taken it more seriously. Um, so I wish that, I wish in first grade, I told my mom that I was suicidal instead of, it seems like a very enticing thing, like it's a way out, 
but it's the wrong thing. But I used to sit on it and I wish I'd gone to my mom then. Obviously at every single stage growing up, I wish I'd gone to my mom and said, this is a really big problem. We need to do something about this. Um, in a nutshell, this so much, I mean, had this been caught when I was in first grade, like my life would have looked so different. I never would have lost that 20 years. So yeah, I want to say something. I don't think you lost 20 years. I think you became Kitty in those 20 years. And that's a pretty Thank amazing you. woman. Yeah. Thank you. I'm very flattered. Thank you. It, it sounds like, you know, you reference your mom a lot throughout your journey. Were there other people that you credit with helping to get you towards recovery or acceptance of the diagnosis? I know you mentioned people who weren't as helpful, but were there others either in your family or other clinical providers that you say, but boy, they made an impact on me? Right, right. Um, well, I would, my dad was certainly there. Um, my dad was certainly there. Um, he was always working, so he wasn't quite as much in the picture, but, um, you know, I had my baby nurse in my life. She, I still keep up with her. Um, she's still in my life. Um, and I'm trying to think, treaters were obviously a very important part of my recovery. I mean, that's a given, they're my treaters. Um, but, uh, one thing I would say is that I found there to be a lot of unconscious bias in treaters. And people don't often talk about how treaters are also affected by the stigma. And that made it difficult for me to accept that I had it because a big part of not wanting to have it was just wanting to be free of mental health professionals. And that was really a huge part of why I tapered off the medicine was not that you know, it, I was not wanting to have bipolar disorder, but it was really also wanting to be free of mental health professionals because the way I was being treated. Sure. So. So I, that is really profound statement that in an indictment of our field in some ways that somebody would go off medication just to avoid the mental health professionals. But that said, mm -hmm. I hope that is changing. I think the stigma is shifting. I think mental health professionals are much more receptive than they had been in the past. What advice do you have for teenagers struggling with depression or other mental illness? Maybe not even teenagers, kids younger than that. What would be your first mm -hmm. piece of advice for people? Well, I believe that um, children should be educated about mental illness from a very young age. I think that would absolutely decrease stigma and, um, you know, and, and really increase the likelihood that it gets addressed at a much younger age. Um, as far as what I would say, I would just say, take it seriously. Don't, um, you know, take mental illness very seriously because people do come down with these illnesses and they are very real. And, you know, like I said, it was never talked about growing up. It was never talked about at my school. You know, I knew nothing about it. And um, so I would say to them, know about it, understand it, um, understand that it could happen to you. It could happen to a friend of yours. And if it does, hasn't happened to someone in your family and 
you will know people in your lives who come down with this and it's very real. That's right. One thing you talk about that I think is so profound for someone your age is, you know, the importance of, you know, what decisions you made around who you disclose this to and how you thought about not only your own emotions, but, you know, how do you kind of, I guess my question to you is how do you wrestle as a young person with a diagnosis and determining who's it safe to disclose to and how that impacts your support system? And I'd also be curious to hear sort of where are you in that cycle today around a support system and what are your challenges, you know, at this moment going forward? Yeah, sure. Um, okay. So in terms of choosing to disclose it, I, there was once a time after I got ECT that was, I was aware of the, the stigma and prejudice before it. And then I forgot it because of all the ECT I had. And then I it was, it was a rude awakening afterwards that I realized that so many people were really prejudiced and it began to seep in a little bit. And I just said to myself one day, oh my God, I have, I'm so under the weather with my illness. I really don't have the time and energy to be ashamed of this. And so, I don't know, maybe I used the cognitive techniques they were teaching me, but I just said to myself, imagine a day when this is not stigmatized at all. Imagine a day when telling someone that you have a broken arm is the same as telling someone that you have a mental illness at a cocktail party, that it's treated the same way. And, um, it's hard to imagine these days um, because it's the present and we haven't been to the future, but then you realize you look at other forms of prejudice and you look how drastically different uh, we look at those today than we did a hundred years ago. And you realize that it's just a societal attitude and it's entirely a product of where society is at the time that it's, it's not a truth. It's a societal attitude. And, um, I really internalized that. And when you're, I think of it as a box, like you can be underneath it and be ashamed. You can be on top of it. You can be comfortable with it, but not really sharing it with people. And then you can be above it, which is when it can't touch you. And if somebody could make fun of me for having a mental illness and having had psychosis, for example, and I would be just as uh, hurt as if they were making fun of me for having broken my arm or having blue eyes, it really doesn't make a difference to me. And I know that's a bold thing to say, but that's really the point where I've got to and what I've internalized. So to answer your question, I would feel comfortable disclosing everything to anyone. Now, practically speaking, people get very uncomfortable with the topic and it's considered an overshare if you share it with someone who you're not close to. So that's the one thing that keeps me from disclosing it more liberally than I do. But um, I make an effort to, to push it just a little bit because I know that people, um, you know, I believe it's one thing that I can do to fight stigma is, is tell people and hopefully the next time they meet someone with it, they'll be like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard of this before. I, I know a little bit about this. So um, that's what I would say about disclosure. 
Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again. I love your authenticity, your vulnerability, and frankly, your power. I love how you have owned your experience and your story. Thank you. And I look forward to hearing, you know, what the next 10 years look like for you. I do. Thank you. Me too. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today for an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Our guest today was Kitty Sprague, Arden O'Connor, and I. I hope that if you enjoyed this episode or learned something today, you will like us on your platform of choice. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.